Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington, and uh, thank you for joining us here on the Gist of Freedom, a way of www.blackhistoryblog.com. I'll be your host. Joining me tonight will be Donnell Conley, in addition to Penny Marshall, who is the chairperson for the Harriet Tubman Journey. Uh, they're in the state of Delaware. They're having a celebration. Uh, it culminates on March the 10th. Uh, welcome, Penny. Are you there? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this event and talk about Harriet Tubman. Okay, and uh, Donnell Conley, are you with us? Okay. Um, I want to remind uh, folks that we will have a reading of uh, Benjamin Quarles' book, The Black Abolitionist, following our interview uh, with Ms. Marshall. So, Ms. Marshall, bring us up to date. What's going on in the state of Delaware? Well, what has happened is, uh, as uh, your listeners probably uh, may know, it's the 100-year anniversary of Harriet Tubman's death. And Delaware uh, was one of the states that she traveled through uh, towards freedom, not only for herself, but also for others uh, that she carried along with her. Um, so to, commemor- to uh, celebrate the fact that uh, she was able to do this um, and be an inspiration to so many people, we have decided to travel along some of the areas that uh, Harriet Tubman traveled in Delaware, uh, there's a whole 97-mile trek, uh, but uh, we kind of figured out that we probably would not get enough people to make that distance, and civilization has made it difficult. So um, what we've done is kind of divided into three parts. Uh, okay. We have a relay run, a, re- a running relay uh, that will occur uh, from. Maryland line, uh, a place called Sandtown, up to uh, an area called Brecknock Park. It's a 14-mile trek in which um, 
uh, we will have Delaware State students, uh, students from Wesley College, and also Dover High School students will run uh, that area. Uh, the, that particular program will be started off by the president of Delaware State College, who's been very supportive of uh, this particular uh, venture. Um, in addition, up north we will have a group of predominantly lady motorcyclists who will come from Pennsylvania and travel down north, uh, from the north to um, the Riverfront Park. At the park, we will have a massive group of people that will run around the area that is uh, actually Dravo Plaza, but it's right near the, the uh, Tubman uh, Garrett Park. Um, the purpose of these events is to kind of enlighten people, educate people about Harriet Tubman because all the programs, uh, all of the uh, run walks will also have programs in which we talk about uh, Harriet Tubman. We'll have reenactors. Uh, we'll also have music uh, that would be uh, important to the time period. And uh, special treat, we'll have some students who have written essays about what if Harriet Tubman had a cell phone and a laptop computer? Um, in addition, we'll have poetry, and we also have history cards that we'll be, we'll be passing out to folks to kind of keep them abreast of the abolitionists of the time period. So we have a little bit for, of, of um, something for everyone. <laughs> okay. I want to remind our listeners that the Gift of Freedom will be broadcasting live from those events in Delaware. Um, Wonderful. We'll be very glad to have you. Um, I would also add that uh, while we're that, that the events are very uh, children friendly, and that we will have um, the Children's Museum up north will open its doors at a reduced rate. You can get in if you have a uh, registration, a shirt registration, for $5, and you'll be able to go in with your kids and make a quilt um, that would be consistent with telling the story of Harriet Tubman. Uh, we've we've also gotten permission to use a Harriet Tubman coloring book, uh, so we'll have kids that will be able to uh, color the history of uh, Harriet Tubman. Um, you know, the the genesis of this whole thing was to make sure that Delawareans um, and beyond recognized just what a fantastic woman uh, this individual was. Uh, Harriet Tubman has been a personal in inspiration for me. Um, and many people will read uh, maybe a little bit about her or know a little bit about her, but we wanted it to be more broad, uh, broad spectrum range where folks would celebrate just how much she accomplished. Yes, uh, she, along with other abolitionists, and our listeners are reminded that we will be listening to the reading of the Benjamin Quarles book, The Black Abolitionist. Will any of Miss um, Tubman's descendants be involved in the celebration? We have um we should have done a better job of getting them involved. We're hoping they will come down and join us. Uh some people have tried to reach out um and I'm not sure we have someone there, but uh, if they're listening, I hope uh they will certainly come um because of how much she means to all of us. Um 
we we have access. I mean, if they want to get in touch with me uh, or listening, then they could do so. We have a HarrietTubmanJourney.org uh, website, and then we also have Harriet Tubman Journey Facebook. And you may also call me at 514-7785. So we'd be very happy uh, to have them involved. Um, Excuse me, go ahead. Sherry, go to your phone number. Uh, 302, sorry. 302. Yes. Um, go ahead. Uh, your point about other abolitionists, I mean, what's so important about Harriet Tubman is that she was helped not only by um, Quakers and uh, good white folks that believed it was important to free slaves, but there was a number of black free blacks uh, that had a had a role in making sure that um, uh, she made it to freedom as well as other abolitionists. I, I believe that uh, sometimes the story gets lost uh, that there were these other black abolitionists that had uh, such a role uh, in the um, Underground Railroad and in, in uh, securing the freedom of other slaves. Um, Samuel Burris, for example, is one of those individuals. He's one of the Delaware's most notable conductors on the Underground Railroad, um, and he was willing to be sentenced to jail, fined, and was almost sold. Um, uh, these folks were just, I mean, they were serious about uh, their mission, and you know, the thing that um hits that hits home to me is the hearts of these folks that were involved in this underground railroad Harriet Tubman and the others uh they got to know each other they knew who they could trust and who they couldn't and somehow they were miraculously uh uh, uh successful in taking people from down south and away from what they call bloodhounds um the, the folks that would be after them um, to be able to get folks uh, to freedom. And William Steele was one of the uh, financiers of the Underground Railroad. Exactly. Yes, and, he, uh, he certainly was. He was the author of the book, The Underground Railroad? Yes, yes. How did you get involved in this? What's your background? Well, I'm I'm a lawyer by trade, and... Um, you know, I've, I've gone through, I went through desegregation, I went through uh, the period of time where much of our history was not very much known to us. Uh, my parents did have the requisite Negro pictorial in the basement, and uh, but in school I didn't learn very much. Uh, but Harriet Tubman was uh, someone I did hear about, and she's kind of stuck with me throughout my life to be an inspiration. And I um, have a number of, um, I try to work with a number of charities, and I saw uh, her, the anniversary of her death, as a time that had to be celebrated. And I also, in the same way that she went back over and over again, I thought this was important to do something that gave back to the community. So the proceeds of our event, uh, the race um registrations and also we have sponsors um a number of sponsors that have supported us um we are going to take any money um over and above expenses and give it back to a number of charities many of which deal with children 
uh, Weston Neighborhood House, Delaware Futures, the Kinney Foundation, which is connected to ShopRite, which is a primary uh, sponsor of our program, the Inner City uh, Cultural League, which is located in Dover, and um, I think I'm missing one of them. Um, but uh, we uh, tried to make sure that we make a positive impact uh, on our co- – oh, Delaware Center for Justice. Uh, they're uh, also a very important charity that we are supporting, and uh, we're also helping um, to help to – uh, continue the message of the byway through an organization that's scheduled to work on keeping that going. But, uh, yeah, the message here is that Harriet Tubman was so brave and so willing to give of herself, so why shouldn't we celebrate her and also uh, why shouldn't we be able to uh, be the best we can be and advance our own interests? Um, exactly. Uh, you mentioned that Samuel Burris earlier. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. He was a black man. Is that? Yes. Correct? He's very much a black man. Who um, <clears throat> the picture of him has him with a very handsome top hat um, that he often wore. Um, but he was he worked very hard uh, to make sure that he would not um, um, that he could help other folks. He ended up later on moving to San Francisco and raising money to support uh people that were free later in his life but it was it was interesting just how far he would go he got sentenced etc um and was almost sold but then um someone was able to pose as a slave purchaser and um sort of get him out of out of the hot seat and so instead of being slaved, uh, sold off to slavery again, he was able to continue his mission. You know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about Harriet Tubman is that uh, there were not, you know, women back then were not in a position of sort of being at the forefront of things, but she was a woman, black or white, who was so strong that she was able to be at the forefront of things. And you can imagine this five-foot-tall woman uh, who had been hit in the head and could fall asleep at any given moment, uh, leading grown men uh, to slavery and telling them, (laughs) you know, you either go forward or, um, you know, you won't make it. (laughs) Um, Did uh, John Brown have any involvement with... uh... Yes, yes. Uh, they knew each other right. and knew each other's work. And, in fact, um, there was a time where they were going to um, uh, the mission that he attempted to complete. She was going to be there and, and help out, but um, she ended up being ill. But they were uh, certainly respected each other and had a strong relationship. And you mentioned the byway. What is the byway? In um, Del- uh, we have in our country a number of byways, of course. But Harriet, the Harriet Tubman uh, byway in Delaware, attempts to track the route that she traveled uh, in Delaware towards freedom and other abolitionists. And uh, what it there has been a quarter management report uh, that the state has supported that 
identifies many of the places that are believed to be um, stops for um, those that travel the Underground Railroad. In fact, uh, this month, the final report was unveiled. It was um, unveiled at the time that our governor deci- uh, determined that we should have a Harriet Tubman Day, which is March 10th. Uh, 2013, and it's an interesting work. Uh, it's a quite a big book, and it's 200 and some pages, and it identifies uh, the statutes that have been created. It identifies uh, some of the churches that were involved. Some of these places are no longer existing, but but actually some of them are, and so it's more than um, I guess it's more than just sort of historical buildings. It's a sort of trek that shows the areas that she might have traveled through. And in fact, I went uh, riding on parts of the byway, the the 97-mile trek, and you almost can kind of move yourself into the time period, and you can feel the emotion of her having to travel through marshes and very difficult terrain uh, to try to make it to freedom. I see. And um, will we be able to buy that book come Sunday? I uh, We don't have that book available, but uh, the best thing to do is to uh, go online and look for the um, Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway, the Corridor Management Plan. If you look online, there is a copy that is online, and I think if you if you contacted um, the Underground Railroad Coalition, they could assist you, or else actually our transportation department, DelDOT, um, uh, will help you with uh, having access uh, to that book. But it does have a number of details about places uh, that you can find out information about where uh, – Harriet Tubman might have traveled and other Underground Railroad person persons. Were you were you involved with the byway? And if not, who uh, brought that project about? I I was not, and in fact, uh, I was at an event recently and found out that members um, from Delaware State College had had a role uh, from the beginning, and then our our transportation department uh, was given the task of having some folks get together to um, start the byway and have it succeed. Um, it's not uh, there. There are certain levels of byways in terms of rec- national recognition, and our byway is still working on uh, some of the signage, but it has come a long way. And this, the book identifies so many uh, important historical places. Uh, there's just page, there's pages of, of folks that have you know that have been imbo- involved in the whole process: the Historical Society, University of Delaware, Delaware State, the Department of Transportation, uh, some of the towns, historians. It's just pages and pages of folks that have become involved. And the uh, Delaware Historical Societies, are they involved at all? Yes, they are. The Delaware Historical Society Societies have been involved. And they've been involved in a lot of the events that have occurred this week. Uh, 
in support of Harriet Tubman. There have been, uh, we had 10 days of events, and in fact, our walk runs, our uh, walk run ride events are sort of a culmination of the events that have transpired. Uh, We have had plays, we've had uh, history tours, we've had uh, book readings, et cetera, in the state, uh, all to pay attention and have people pay attention to this important figure in our history. And how did the uh, Harriet Tubman Day come about? Whose idea was it? Well, <laughs> actually, I guess it was mine. I I mean, it, was, it started as mine. I um, went to what happened was I was noticing the date, and I had decided that <laughs> what should happen is Myself and some friends should run the 97 miles. Um, And I didn't have a long list of people that said that they would accompany me. So I noticed the – actually, I noticed the report, the um, management plan, and I went to see the Underground Railroad Coalition, um, Deborah Martin, uh, who's located in a in our government offices and spoke to her about my idea and she invited me to the meetings of the of the personnel that were working on the events for the centennial and I talked to them about their idea and uh an individual by the name of Ann Gravatt uh with our Delaware Transportation Department um talked to me and we kind of figured out a way to do this without being able to do the whole way because we figured out it was time sensitive and as I mentioned before the terrain so uh kind of picked portions that we could uh use and as I talked to people I mean I I won't take credit for the whole thing because as I talked to folks and I got a committee together we have some very talented people that have helped out on this committee and they're all volunteers from all kinds of professions um have sort of added ideas. I mean, we even in the in our adventure we have this coloring book uh for kids and that came because somebody suggested that would be a good idea. So, we've kind of the journey itself as we call it the Harriet Tubman journey is a collaboration of just volunteers who um who Harriet Tubman meant so much to. Did you meet with the governor on this? We we did not, but he's uh, been very supportive. And, in fact, on the first day of the 10 days, I saw him. I'm familiar with him, know him. And he came he uh, in our old state house, which is also significant to the um, Underground Railroad, he came and read a proclamation uh, from the governor's office. He's been supportive as well as, uh, in fact, our uh, we've had a number of our cities throughout the state that have read proclamations. Indeed, the governor, I mean, the mayors from Dover and Camden will be uh, will be reading pro- proclamations on Sunday at Brecknock Park, which is the uh, sort of focal point after Sandtown in Kent County uh, at 12 noon, about 12 noon, there will be a gathering of folks that will wait for the relay team to come up, walk the park, and then they will uh, have a program, and that program will include proclamations. 
Um, Delaware City, I think, has also done a proclamation. I just today uh, left the Wilmington City Council, who read a proclamation um, supporting Harriet Tubman Day. So it's kind of it's kind of just taken off. Uh, there are so many people ju- that just love this woman and uh, who just are inspired by what she was able to accomplish. In our book reading tonight, we're going to hear how the abolitionists back in the day bombarded the state house with uh, petitions. In your efforts in putting this Harriet Tubman Bay together, did you use any petitions? We did not use we did not use petitions. I did a lot of letter writing. I did a lot of um, talks with folks, uh, but we did not use petitions. I guess that would have been an idea. <laughs> I should have spoke to you sooner. <laughs> do you know how many other states, if any, that are having a Harriet Tubman Day? I do know that Maryland and I also believe Pennsylvania is uh, doing uh, a number of activities. Um, the Maryland program has been working quite some time at honoring Harriet Tubman, and uh, they have a number of events in also Pennsylvania. Uh, I would really think that we should do uh, more to make it sort of a national day uh, where she's honored everywhere. Uh, I, I think um, – go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, what I was going to say is that our history is so important. I was a history major at one point before I decided to run off and be a lawyer, and it I understand from that just how important you're able to go forward by knowing from whence you came. And I think uh, something that is missing sometimes is that we don't get the message to uh, youth about exactly – where we came from. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're often willing to complain about the trials and tribulations, for example, we deal with our economy, et cetera. But if you can imagine, uh, or if kids could imagine just being judged totally by their color, being grabbed at any given moment, uh, could be killed. I mean, the scars that Harriet Tubman bore uh, was because she was beaten, because they thought she was lazy. At, at a young age when no child should be working at all. And then even as she got older, um, she always was at the whim of her masters. I mean, part of the reason why she decided to run away in her 20s was that she was worried about being sold off to into slavery, which could happen at any uh, given time. And it did not matter whether you were married, uh, whether you had children, etc., um, indeed, she got to see the pain of her mother as her slave master separated their family, some of her sisters that she was never able to see again. Um, I mean, it was just painful for, for her to see that. And her brothers, um, indeed, uh, her trip back after she had secured her own freedom was to go back and get her family members and bring them forward. And that kind of anguish to be away from those that love you, um, being beaten at any given moment, being in a position where you never got paid for your wages, um, and just that that disrespect of not even considering you a person. You were only property. 
um, you could be bought and sold, you could be uh, abused. You, in, indeed, um, there was times when if you couldn't take the beatings, if you couldn't take the beatings and you died, uh, some states uh, allowed you to get compensation back um, from the state for uh, the fact that you lost a slave. You know, Harriet was known to have uh, used guns. Do you know if she ever turned on any of her slaveholders? Did she ever uh, visit any violence upon them? Well, she never physically, well, <laughs> what I will say is that after she became, um, we do not know of her shooting any of her slave masters or beating them, but we do know that after she, um, after the Civil War, um, or during the period of the Civil War, she was in a position of leading uh, troops. Uh, she's the only woman to have done that at the time, and she was able to uh, lead Union soldiers, and they pillaged certain areas and certainly got like hundreds of slaves away from the, um, the away from bondage. And I'm sure there was some violence there. I don't know that she personally did any of that, but you know, there it was a it was a rough business at the time. And you know, you think of it. Um, People often think that what slaves did was just kind of grin and enjoy the experience and, and kind of were resigned to it, but it wasn't that way. I mean, there were uprisings. There were people running away. There were people fighting back, uh, resurrections where uh, some of the slave masters were killed. And I have no doubt that, you know, if she got in a position, uh, she had a – she had a, a a rifle, and she would use it if she had to. Is it true that she had two husbands? Yes, and that's a that's an interesting, fun. I mean, well, interesting uh, human story because her first husband was a freeman. Um, he um, had married her. It's not known. I don't think exactly how that happened, but. She, um, well, except they fell in love, and um, she married him, and then when she secured her freedom, she came back and tried to convince him to uh, come with her, but he had remarried, I guess, um, in those days, marriage, uh, especially amongst slaves and even other blacks, was not this, didn't have the same sanctity and stamp of the law that it has now, so he had remarried, and so uh, she had to leave without him, and it's interesting that years later he was in a position where uh, he was along a roadway, got into an argument with a white man, and he killed him. And so um, she lived on, and she was able to marry a second husband who was a soldier in the war, uh, the Civil War, a proud, tall black man, and she married him, and they lived together. I think it was almost 19 years, and he died of, I think, ter tuberculosis, and um, got. And so, the second marriage lasted forever. And um, indeed, the irony of it is that as hard as she fought in the Civil War, her own pension was denied her 
but he she was able to use his pension to to try to live on. She had a very difficult life at the end where she did not have a lot of financial resources. There was efforts made to try to get her more money and she relied on um some of the other abolitionists, uh, especially some of the the white abolitionists that had more money to assist her uh, Mm -hmm. to make it so that she could make it. Um, You know, as you bring that up, it's it's really sad that even after all she did, that she wasn't just revered. Um, One of the things, the horrible things that happened to her was that she was leaving – I guess the site of one of the war, uh, the war. She was a soldier, and she had her soldiers' papers, and she's sitting uh, there, thinking she's going north to home and things would be fine. But some folks that were on the um, the train that she was on told her that she had to move to the back. Um, and, and that's interesting in light of the fact that Rosa Parks was born the same year she died. Um, she had to move to the back. She was supposed to, and she wouldn't do it. So they had to carry her, and they actually injured her um, as they did so. Um, it's really, you know, it's really, an, you know, an insult to injury, having gone through all that and been such a hero, and then being treated like that, and then also in her later years having to deal with the indignity of not having enough money uh, to be able to survive. Uh, adequately. How many, kids, how many kids did she have? She had no kids. She she had no kids. Um, she did have a niece that had come to live, that sort of was an adopted daughter, and she had her uh, stay with her, but no uh, kids from either one of her husbands. Now, you mentioned that she was injured on this train ride. Yes. And, um did she suffer a head injury, and was she um, subjected to having spells? Yes. Um, you know, there's there's so much in the story about her. Uh, not only is she a, a small woman, a slave, and uh, one that um, had to deal with, you know, bondage, et cetera, but she was, in all, for all intents and purposes, dealing with um, the problem of a medical condition, um, one day when she was very young, she went to town, uh, the town store, which still exists. It's it's still still there. Um, she went to town in, in Maryland, and um, there was a slave who the master was upset because the person was not where they were supposed to be. Um, and so the master kind of wanted her to help him with that. Instead, she stood in the middle and was he picked up a weight and threw it at her and hit her in the head. And once he hit her in the head, after that, oftentimes she had these spells. Um, she saw them as a as her visions. She saw them as um, sort of part of her spirituality. Uh, but if you can imagine somebody that's leading people through swamps, et cetera, and all of a sudden she just would fall asleep. Um, they've either called it uh, uh, epilepsy or narcolepsy uh, that she has had. Um, but it's just, you know, it was amazing that it was uh, so difficult. And I think later in her life, she ended up having um, surgery uh, to try to rel- relieve some of the pressure 
um, in her head because of that. And um, <laughs> uh, in in typical Harriet Tubman uh, fashion, instead of sort of being kind of put to sleep about it, she uh, grinned and bore it and was and had this uh, sort of surgery to try to make it better. Um, but it was something she had to deal with all her life, where it was just always, uh, it was painful. Um, it wasn't just that she fell asleep, but that it, it was also painful. How old was she when she died? Uh, let's see. Well, that's, um, you know, that's open to question because they, it's not really known exactly when she was born because uh, in those days, of course, slaves did not... Um, there was no record of uh, when they were, you know, when they were born, unless it was in a Bible or something like that. Uh, it's believed that it was in 1822 um, or 1820 uh, or thereabouts, and then she would have died in um, 1913. Uh, so. Uh, and how old was she when she got injured? Suffered that um, injury. She was in her, I think she was in her teens, uh, yeah, somewhere in her teens was when she was injured. And then um, she was in her early 20s when she uh, sought her freedom, which was in 1849. Um, and then she start. that's when she started her treks back, uh, her, I think it was about 13 missions back to Maryland uh, to free family members and others. How many siblings did she have? And did she uh, free all of them, many of them? She she did. Um, there was, I think, eight, eight or nine kids. I think it was eight. Um, and as I said, some of those kids found themselves in a position of never being with the family again because they were sold off into slavery. Um, you bring up kids. I mean, her mother, you know, her mother was a, a kind of strong-willed person who tried her best to kind of keep the family together. Um, at one point, there was a son that um, was almost sold off into slavery, and the mother and family members and friends hid him out in the woods <laughs> um, to try to keep the master from sell, um from selling him and at mm -hmm. some point um when they could hide him no more the and he was in the house with his mother um she basically told the master that she would split his head open if he came if he came in and took her son so he could tell she was serious so that son did not get sold away um the interesting thing was that her parents were on different plantations, so the family unit was not sort of under one uh, roof for quite some time. Uh, later they were, um, but it was it, she still saw all of them as family and and was close to them. Indeed, one of her last trips um, north was to bring her family, her her mother and father, uh, up north. They had, at that time, actually been freed. Um, and But the problem was they had helped other slaves escape. So she was very worried that what would happen is 
uh, they would be taken off and sold into slavery because that all oftentimes is what what would happen if you did something to uh, violate the rule the, the rules which were that uh, slaves were supposed to stay where they were uh, you could find yourself uh, sold into slavery white people uh, at the time were often fined or jailed. Um, or had to deal with something such as that, but the Excuse ultimate me, insult would be that blacks would be sold. Excuse me, Penny. I believe we have a caller. Uh-huh. Uh, caller 504, your line is open. Do you have a question or comment? Number 504, are you there? Oh, 504, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were doing the area code. I just call in to listen. Oh, I thought you had a question or comment. Anyone? Okay. Not at this time. Thank you. I'm sorry. Certainly. Anyone else there that um, on the call in line? Do you have a question or comment? I would add for your listeners that uh, if they come down to the event in Delaware. Uh, they're certainly to learn a lot about Harriet Tubman um, and get and have a, a unique experience. We even have a reenactor that's going to um, play the part of uh, Harriet Tubman, not only for the general uh, general consumption, but also for the children that arrive. And it's not too late to um, register at HarrietTubmanJourney.org. Um, and if um, if you register today while we're list while this uh, program is going on, if you enter the code HTJ, it will cost you twenty dollars instead of the regular twenty five dollar registration fee. What other attractions will be available to uh, visitors there, such as museums, zoos, concert halls, and particularly any black owned uh, restaurants and black owned other businesses? Well, first of all, I would tell you just uh, this is not Black Cone, but the park itself is the Tubman Garrett Riverfront Park, and we have a wonderful, absolutely wonderful statute uh, that you can enjoy um, while you're down there. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, oh, there's... um, Evelyn's that's not too far away. They have the greatest fish. (laughs) Um, So that's one place uh, that you could enjoy. There's also a number of um, Jamaican restaurants that aren't that far away from the area uh, in terms of um, consumption. Um, Trying to think of other... Do you have T-shirts that anyone... uh, Yes, we definitely do. Uh, Maryland has consented to allow us to use their um, their uh, logo. There's an official Harriet Tubman logo, and it's very nice. And we will have commemorative T-shirts uh, available for purchase. Uh, in it. And if you register, you get a T-shirt that uh, goes with it. We're also having a bag of kind of goodies, and instead of the traditional just uh, – items that you might have. Uh, we also are including history cards and information about uh, the byway and about the um, uh, uh, sites that you might see in Delaware that are related to the Underground Railroad. We've tried to make 
this a event that inspires, educates, and allows others to reminisce and remember. Um, so that's kind of kind of our mission. I mean, Harriet Tubman was has always been so important to me, and I want her to be so important for generations to come. Well, the gift of freedom sends out a lot of love to you and to your sponsors for this uh, great event that you're putting together. And before we go to our reading, are there? Would you give us the contact information again? Yes, you it's your number was three zero two five one four seven seven eight five. Yes, that's correct. Okay, and our website website is tubmanjourney dot org, and you can also reach us on Facebook at uh, Harriet Tubman uh, Journey. Uh, And remember, all of this is to give back um, uh, to our communities, um, our kids and adults that are having a difficult time uh, because the proceeds will go uh, to uh, to charities. Let's give out those websites one more time. Be happy to. HarrietTubmanJourney.org, and the uh, Facebook is Harriet Tubman Journey. And we want to remind everyone that anyone can buy a T-shirt online, right? Uh, yes, they can. So they should be uh, getting online right now to get that commemorative T-shirt. That phone and, number and, again, where Miss Marshall can be contacted, is three zero two. Five one four seven seven eight five. Yes, ma'am. You got something else you want yes. to say? Yes. The other thing I'd like to say is um, this has been such a um, sort of um, moving experience that I would also appreciate that if people do go on Facebook that they uh, express their thoughts, express their feelings about Harriet Tubman and what she's meant to them. Um, I think that. Um, We've all grown from the experience of putting this together and also spreading the word about her bravery, uh, her resilience, and her willingness to do for others. Um, As we now live in a time where there's too much violence against each other uh, in our communities, and we live at a time that folks do not sit down and work out ways to enhance our our society they argue back and forth uh she was willing to work with others um black abolitionists white abolitionists um just uh for a common good and so it's hope that her story will make it so that we do better than we're doing now (laughs) right well thank you for being with us um penny marshall who is the chairperson for the harriet tubman day celebration in delaware Um, Upcoming now will be a reading of the Black Abolitionist. Uh, Listeners should pay uh, particular attention to the petition movement uh, that's going to be talked about, and also the Underground Railroad uh, in Texas, Mexico, and uh, mention of the Mexican War and the um, Underground Railroad and how Mexico refused to extradite uh, self-emancipated uh, slaves. And uh, again, Penny Marshall has been our guest here, and uh, we should be moving into our reading of the Black Abolitionists. Thank you again, Penny. And, please, and thank you for having me. If you have the time, uh, 
stick around and listen to the reading and maybe um, join in the discussion after. Yes, I will. I will try to do that for a time. Okay. I've, I've got to get ready for Sunday, so I'm working nonstop. But I will listen for it. Well, time. thank you, thank okay. you. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles continued. The set six, side one. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by Mm -hmm. honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. With the coming of the new abolitionists after 1830, the use of the petition reached flood proportions. To put his name down on a long sheet of paper under a statement condemning slavery became second nature to a new school abolitionist, even to a follower of Garrison who decried such political activity as voting or holding office. The massive abolition petition against slavery began in 1835, and, it is hardly necessary to add, with the full backing of the black abolitionists. Three years earlier, the Massachusetts General Colored Association, meeting in Boston, had voted to send a petition to Congress to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. During the following spring, at two meetings held at the African Masonic Hall in Boston, Maria W. Stewart gave an analysis of the Negro's problem and suggested a step for its solution. Most of our color, she said, have been taught to stand in fear of the white man from their earliest infancy, to work as soon as they can walk and call master before they could scarce lisp the name of mother. What should be done about changing things? Let every man sign a petition to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia and grant you the rights and privileges of common citizens. A few weeks later, on June 16, 1833, a petition was drafted in the name of 1,200 Negroes of Providence, Rhode Island, and sent to Andrew Jackson. Reminding the chief executive of his commendation of the Negro troops under him at the Battle of New Orleans in January 1815, the Providence Negroes urged Jackson to free the slaves in the District of Columbia and in the territories of Arkansas and Florida, and entreated him not to forget the million of our brethren and sisters still in slavery. Hundreds of abolitionist petitions were directed against the annexation of the Republic of Texas, which had won its independence from Mexico in 1836. If Texas came into the Union, it would come in, as abolitionists well knew, as a slave state. The New York Vigilance Society was one of the Negro groups that opposed the annexation. At the Broadway Tabernacle on August 1, 1837, the Society opened a booth at which passers-by could sign a petition against the admission of Texas and against slavery in the district. A year earlier, at its first annual meeting, the American Moral Reform Society had gone on record as opposing Texas annexation. They had also thanked John Quincy Adams for having fought to maintain the right to petition irrespective of color or condition. Although himself not an abolitionist, 
Adams had become an admired figure among them as a consequence of his fight against the gag rule. First passed in the House of Representatives in May 1836, this was a measure declaring that all petitions relating to slavery should be laid on the table, not sent to a committee and reported back, as was customary. This measure backfired, however, since it struck at a basic constitutional right. Abolitionists became more petition-minded than ever, and Adams became their chief means of transmission, presenting petition after petition, despite the threats of his House colleagues to censure or expel him. One of the largest petitions ever reaching the Washington office of Congressman Adams was an immense roll of paper, about the size of a barrel. It bore 51,862 signatures, headed by the name George Latimer. A runaway slave from Norfolk, Virginia, Latimer had been arrested and placed in a Boston jail in October 1842. Abolitionists and Negroes rallied to his defense, attempting to have him released by a writ of habeas corpus. When this proved unsuccessful, the abolitionists held a mass meeting at Faneuil Hall on October 30th, followed by a series of Latimer meetings throughout the state. I have never known people so aroused before, wrote Samuel E. Sewell, legal counsel for Latimer and one of the speakers at the Faneuil Hall gathering. To coordinate the abolitionist protest, a Latimer committee was appointed, made up of Henry I. Bowditch, William F. Channing, and Frederick Cabot. This trio brought out a weekly, the Latimer Weekly and North Star. Another committee operation was the promotion of two monster petitions, one to the state legislature and another to the national legislature. The great Massachusetts petition, calling for a state law forbidding the use of public property or the services of public officials in the detention or arrest of any alleged fugitive. The great petition to Congress asked that such laws or amendments be passed as would separate the people of Massachusetts from all connection with slavery. The two Latimer petitions won the full support of Negroes. Indeed, five months before Latimer was arrested, a group of Boston Negroes had pledged themselves to draft a petition to the incoming state legislature which would prohibit citizens and officials of Massachusetts from aiding slaveholders in seizing and returning fugitives. They also unanimously agreed to petition Congress to repeal the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793. Late in November, at a meeting held at the Belknap Street Baptist Church, a Negro gathering protested the imprisonment of Latimer and pledged themselves to support the two petitions being circulated by the Latimer Committee. At Hartford's Fifth Congregational Church on November 17, 1842, the Reverend J.W.C. Pennington delivered a sermon on the Latimer case, covenants involving moral wrong not obligatory upon man. Don't let Charles Dickens hear of the Latimer case, pleaded Pennington, lest he write an addendum to his notes on America. If the Latimer case did not reach international proportions, it was due to the uneasiness of James B. Gray, the owner of Latimer. Surprised by the depth of feeling which the case aroused throughout New England, and fearful of the countercharges launched by Latimer's legal advisers, Gray decided to sell him for $400. The abolitionists were highly pleased at this turn of events, but they did not propose to abandon their petition drive. By mid-February 1843, the two petitions were delivered to their respective destinations. 
the petition to the Massachusetts legislature, bearing 64,526 signatures and weighing 150 pounds, was delivered at the State House on February 17, 1843, by Charles Francis Adams. Five weeks later, the legislature passed a measure dubbed by the delighted abolitionists as the Latimer Statute, because it was so closely modeled after their petition. A similar fate eluded the companion petition that went to John Quincy Adams in Washington. This petition shared a common graveyard with such previous stillborns as the one from nine Negro women in Fredericksburg, Virginia, presented by Adams in February 1837, the petition from New York Negroes in June 1838, protesting against the treatment of American colored seamen in Cuba, and the petition by Boston Negroes in October 1842, bitterly complaining about the treatment given to black sailors in five southern states. But if such petitions got nowhere, it was not the fault of those presenting them, and John Quincy Adams continued to receive expressions of high esteem from Negroes. His death in 1848, four years after the repeal of the gag rule, was widely mourned by Negroes. Commemorative meetings were held by colored people in Detroit, Cincinnati, Buffalo, New York, and Philadelphia. Adams had never been a professing abolitionist, and his bald and pot-bellied exterior hardly cast him in a heroic mold. But to Negroes he was a fearless advocate of the rights of man, and this was a breed none too numerous, as their experience had taught them. To the various state legislatures in the North came petitions from Negro residents. As a rule, these memorials dealt with discriminatory measures, impending or already enacted, against colored people. These petitions had one other thing in common. Their instigators were almost invariably active abolitionists. For example, the 11-page memorial sent to the Pennsylvania Assembly in March 1832, protesting against a proposed bill severely limiting Negro migration to Pennsylvania, was planned at a meeting at which James C. McCrummel was chairman and Jacob C. White was secretary. The petition was worded by three men of equal reputation as black abolitionists, James Fortin, Robert Purvis, and William Whipper. In their petitions to state legislatures, then, Negroes were not addressing themselves solely to local or internal grievances. They were, at the same time, leveling their pieces at much bigger game, the jungle king of slavery. Abolitionists found that political activity brought some gains, but it had its limitations. Petitions were of little good unless they were followed up. Voting for a winning candidate did not ensure the desired legislation, and even the law itself, particularly a new law, often turned out to be less binding than social and economic pressures. These strong pressures came to the fore in American life with a compelling urgency in the 1850s and with a twist that was not wholly surprising, they made their debut with a law relating to fugitive slaves. Chapter 9. Protests New Prophets Thursday, May 25, 1854. Did not intend to write this evening, but another fugitive from bondage has been arrested like a criminal in the streets. Diary of Charlotte Fortin it was the first time this October 5, 1850, at 12 noon, that New York Negroes had ever held a meeting in the public park. But then there had never been so large a black audience or so deeply moving an occasion. 
5,000 people had gathered to welcome home a fellow New Yorker who had been gone hardly a week. Moreover, he was dressed as a laborer and hence could hardly have been a community leader or member of the black elite. But when the 30-year-old porter stood up after being introduced by the presiding officer, the audience cheered with deafening effect, drowning out the sobbing and the crying, some of which came from the guest of honor himself. For this man was a fugitive slave, James Hamlet, who had been seized on the streets of New York nine days earlier. Hamlet had offered as his defense the fact that he was a free man, having entitled himself to his freedom. But his line of reasoning lacked admissible legal precedent. In fact, the testimony of an alleged fugitive was invalid by law. Hence, Hamlet had been arrested and returned to his Baltimore mistress. A few days later, New York Negroes held a mass meeting at Mother Zion Church, with many whites present, for the purpose of raising enough money to buy Hamlet. Amid great enthusiasm, the purchase price of $800 was raised, one Negro, Isaac Hollenbeck, starting things off with a donation of $100. Now Hamlet was home again, no longer melancholy, but restored to his family, friends, and job. Standing before the gathering in the park, Hamlet waved his dampened handkerchief while a bevy of women gathered around his wife and child. Such kissing and crying never were seen, wrote a contemporary. When things quieted down, there were speeches by William P. Powell, Charles B. Ray, John Peter Thompson, and Robert Hamilton. But there was none from Hamlet, his heart too full. He is a free man. That is a speech itself, explained Hamilton. The exercises closed with the singing of a hymn, and then Hamlet was hoisted in the air and borne on shoulders through the park and to his home. The Hamlet case was hardly a victory over slavery. For, as William P. Powell had remarked, it was brought about not by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation, but by the irresistible genius of the almighty dollar. What gave the Hamlet case its dramatic impact was its timing. It took place a week after President Fillmore had signed into law a measure that shook the North, its subject the fugitive slave. One of five measures known collectively as the Compromise of 1850 the fugitive slave law provoked an unprecedented hue and cry. The law denied both the testimony of the alleged runaway and his right to a trial by jury, and it assumed his guilt rather than his innocence. Such a measure could have been swallowed by Congress only because it was part of a package, for it violated the basic concepts of American law and the procedural guarantees of the Constitution. Hence, it recharged the emotional slavery debate greatly widening the breach between the sections. In the North, the measure was condemned and defied, and in the South, this condemnation and defiance was regarded as an act of bad faith. The fugitive slave law gave to the abolitionists a weapon which they would exploit to the hilt. In this chorus of condemnation, no voices were louder than those of the Negro. But long before the abolitionist attack could reach its full proportions, Many runaway slaves living in the North had decided to take to the road again, this time to Canada. The law was ex post facto, reaching back to fugitives who had almost forgotten that they had not always been free. Former runaways feared that the law might be enforced, a view sustained in some legal quarters that were friendly to the slave. 
Upon passage of the law, George T. Downing and William P. Powell had written William J., asking his advice on its constitutionality and binding force. The former judge had little for their comfort. You ask me how you shall secure yourselves from the kidnapper. God only knows. Jay urged the Negroes not to turn to violence, to leave the pistol and the boy knife to southern ruffians and their northern mercenaries. A group of New York Negroes sought the advice of another friendly figure, Congressman Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, as to the constitutionality of the new law. Stevens replied that he had little hope that the measure would not be upheld by the federal courts. Hence, he could advise nothing better than the subjects of it put themselves beyond its reach. Many fugitive slaves, apprehensive of their freedom in the land of the fugitive slave law, made ready to take their departure. The black exodus touched every northern city with more than a handful of Negroes. This embraced even Boston, with its tradition of challenging unpopular laws and defying the official charged with enforcing them. Forty former slaves bade farewell to Boston within sixty hours after the fugitive slave bill became law. The city's colored churches were particularly hard hit. The African Methodist Church lost eighty-five members, and the much smaller Zion Methodist Church lost ten. The First Baptist Church lost forty of its one hundred twenty-five enrollees. The congregation of the Twelfth Baptist Church quickly dwindled from 141 to 81, and two of its deacons were retained only because the members had raised $1,300 to buy their freedom. Some of these departees to Canada were relatives of runaways, and a few might have been free-born Negroes who felt jeopardized. But in Boston, as elsewhere, the fugitive slave law revealed that the number of runaways was greater than most people would have thought. For members taking flight, the churches in upstate New York could match those in Boston. The Baptist Colored Church of Buffalo lost 130 members after the pastor told the congregation that he found gospel precedent for running away, but none that warranted fighting. At the Colored Baptist Church of Rochester, the Kentucky-born pastor was the first to quit the city, and he was soon followed by 112 members of his flock, leaving two behind. At Pittsburgh, a group of 200 Negroes left for Canada a few days before the signing of the Fugitive Slave Law. They carried firearms, having vowed that they would die before being taken back into slavery. Pittsburgh lost an additional 800 Negroes, over half of whom were relatives of runaways. Another Pennsylvania city, Columbia, lost 487 of its 943 Negroes during the five-year span after the passage of the law. William Whipper assisted many of the Canada-bound emigrants, helping them to sell such possessions as they could not carry, particularly houses and real estate. At both Columbia and Pittsburgh, a runaway who had been taken into custody was purchased by Negroes, Whipper heading the effort of Columbia and John B. Vachon at Pittsburgh. To most Negroes, outright defiance was a more emotionally satisfying response to the fugitive slave law than flight outside the country or raising money to pay a master. Hence, Negroes throughout the North held anti-fugitive slave law meetings. On October 2, 1850, some 1,500 black New Yorkers jammed into the Zion Chapel for a protest meeting. The presiding officer, William P. Powell, set the tone in a series of opening questions. You are told to submit peacefully to the laws. Will you do so? 
No, no. You are told to kiss the manacles that bind you. Will you do so? No, no, no. Other speakers took up this refrain, which was reaffirmed by the formal resolutions utterly repudiating a law so repugnant to every principle of justice. Before the meeting adjourned, two petitions condemning the law were circulated, one to the state legislature and the other to Congress. A week later, the Negroes of Elmira vowed that they would defy the fugitive slave law at the sacrifice of their lives. Negroes elsewhere voiced similar sentiments. Ten days after the fugitive slave law went into operation, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes held a meeting at the public square. They condemned the Pennsylvania congressman who had supported the slave bill, which they declared to be a deadly blow at liberty. The most stirring remarks came from Martin R. Delaney, who said that he hoped that the ground would refuse his body if a slaveholder crossed his threshold and he did not lay him a lifeless corpse at his feet. An even more impassioned statement came from Robert Purvis, presiding at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society at Westchester on October 17, 1850. His eyes flashing, Purvis declared that, Should any wretch enter my dwelling, any pale-faced specter among ye, to execute this law on me or mine, I'll seek his life, I'll shed his blood. Parker Pillsbury, deeply moved by the outburst, wrote that the fugitive slave law was revealed in all its horror when it could move a man like Purvis to such extremity. Negroes elsewhere shared the defiant mood of Delaney and Purvis. New York Negroes held a meeting which sanctioned forcible resistance to the fugitive slave law, the chairman appointing a committee to assist endangered runaways. Less than a week after the passage of the measure, a large and enthusiastic group of Negroes met at Quinn Chapel in Chicago and proceeded to organize the Liberty Association. Forty-two men, working in teams, were to patrol the city, spying for possible slave hunters. At Zanesville, Ohio, a group of Muskingum County Negroes met in November 1850 and formally declared that if they heard of anyone being arrested as a fugitive, they would leave our several employments to come to his assistance. Two months later, at a statewide meeting of colored citizens at Columbus, the fugitive slave law was denounced as an outrage upon humanity. Boston Negroes held a protest meeting of a resolute and enthusiastic character at the Belknap Street Church on October 4, 1850. Following a series of addresses of a most emphatic type, a resolution was adopted pledging its sponsors to resist unto death any attempt upon their liberties. But some of the fugitives who were present expressed the wish for a large-scale public expression of support. These former slaves were apprehensive, having witnessed the departure and anticipating the impending departure of others of their kind. Ten days later, such a reassurance meeting was held at Faneuil Hall, an appropriate site. The call to the meeting had been signed by Josiah Quincy, former mayor of Boston and 340 other white abolitionists. With hundreds milling outside the packed hall, the meeting allayed any fears as to the abolitionists' support in defying the law. On the platform, the presiding officer, Charles Francis Adams, was flanked by Richard Henry Dana, substituting for the ailing Josiah Quincy, Theodore Parker, Wendell Phillip, Frederick Douglass, Charles Lennox Raymond, and runaways William and Ellen Craft. 
After stating the purpose of the meeting, Adams called upon Douglas to state the conditions of the colored people under this new act of oppression. Arising amid an ovation, the much sought-after orator and former slave did not mince words. Boston Negroes, he said, had vowed to die rather than return to bondage. We must be prepared, should this law be put into operation, to see the streets of Boston running with blood. As if to bear out his assertion, Douglas recited the stories of fugitives who had exhibited unusual daring and courage. Then he asked the audience whether it would permit slaveholders to seize a Negro in Boston. Faneuil Hall's rafters echoed to the cry of no. Douglas closed on a personal note, saying that a rumor had reached Rochester, where he lived, that a group of slave hunters were after him and would visit his home. He had resolved to meet them, and as his house was rather small and the party probably rather large, he went up to a trap door in the attic in order to receive them one at a time. This forceful address set the tone for the remaining speeches and actions. Two resolutions were adopted, one calling for the repeal of the fugitive slave law, and the other proclaiming that constitution or no constitution, we will not allow a fugitive slave to be taken from Massachusetts. A 50-member committee of vigilance was empowered to set up an office to give advice and assistance to fugitive slaves. I am happy to state, wrote Douglas the following morning, that the public meeting held here last night had done much toward quieting the colored people. As it turned out, this optimism was shattered by an occurrence the very next day. Two agents of Dr. Robert Collins of Macon, Georgia, owner of William and Ellen Craft, had arrived in Boston and obtained warrants for their arrest. Wrote Douglas in a hurried dispatch to his weekly, Mr. Craft is armed and resolved to stand his ground and in less than an hour blood may flow in the streets of Boston. No blood was shed, but not because Kraft was unarmed. The clergyman, Theodore Parker, had inspected his weapons, although confessing that it was rather a new business for him. But Parker's analysis bore a professional ring. His powder had a good kernel, and he kept it dry. His pistols were of excellent proof, the barrels true and clean, the trigger went easy. The caps would not hang fire at the snap. I tested his poniard. The blade had a good temper, stiff enough, yet springy withal. The point was sharp. When Henry I. Bowditch offered to drive Kraft across town, the former slave agreed upon condition that Bowditch arm himself. The two drove in Bowditch's buggy, Kraft with a revolver in one hand and a pistol in the other. The two agents of Collins were told that they had better get out of Boston, and one of them heeded the advice. However, the Crafts decided that they too would leave. Upon the advice of well-wishers, they hastened out of the country, having received $250 from the Boston Vigilance Committee to pay their passage to England. But the attending excitement did not die down. The Crafts episode proved to be but one in a highly dramatic series involving the rendition of runaways. Defiance of the fugitive slave law became a new commandment to abolitionists throughout the North. The rescue of slaves who had been taken in custody did not begin in 1850, however. It was something that Negroes had been doing for nearly two decades. In the early summer of 1833, a group of Detroit Negroes rescued two slaves, 
wounding the sheriff in the process and leading the mayor to issue a call for federal troops. In the following spring, several Negroes in Philadelphia were sent to the penitentiary for an attempt to seize a slave from the police, the court having authorized his delivery to his master. Late in July 1836, Boston was the scene of a rescue which came to be known as the Abolition Riot. Two slaves, Eliza Small and Polly Ann Bates, were claimed as runaway slaves belonging to John B. Morris of Baltimore and brought to court. While the attorney for Morris was addressing the judge, someone in the spectator's section shouted, Go! Go! Whereupon some colored people rushed to the bench and bore the prisoners down the courthouse steps and shoved them into a waiting carriage. A colored woman of great size, who scrubbed floors for a living, threw her arms around the neck of one officer, immobilizing him. Eliza and Polly were never recaptured, and their abettors went scot-free, although Sheriff C.P. Sumner, father of Charles Sumner, was criticized for permitting such a breach of the peace. In Chicago, in October 1846, while the case of two runaway slaves from Missouri was in progress in court, a crowd of Negroes and their white sympathizers gathered around the officers and carried the slaves away. At Pittsburgh, a year later, a group of Negroes seized a runaway from two Virginia constables who had placed him under arrest. Up to 1850, the rescuing of fugitive slaves had been a business conducted almost exclusively by Negroes. The fugitive slave law of that year brought an influx of new blood into the work. This the Negro abolitionists welcomed heartily, but they did not use it as an excuse to retire to the sidelines. The Shadrach rescue is a case in point. An employee at the Cornhill Coffee House in Boston, Fred Wilkins, or Shadrach as he was popularly known, was seized at noon on February 15, 1851, and rushed to the courthouse with his waiter's apron still on. The news spread as if with wings the Negro residential section being nearby. Five lawyers, including Robert Morris, a Negro, had just succeeded in obtaining a court delay to prepare for the defense when the rescue took place. A group of some 50 Negroes pressed into the courtroom, lifted Shadrach in the air, and bore him to the street. His clothes half torn off, Shadrach was placed in a carriage, and soon the rescued and the rescuers were moving away like a black squall. There was no pursuit, the seizure having been so sudden and unexpected. Taking refuge in Canada, Shadrach was beyond the reach of American law. But some of his rescuers did not escape legal action. On February 18, 1851, President Fillmore issued a special proclamation ordering that proceedings be commenced against the aiders or abettors in this flagitious offense. Robert Morris and Lewis Hayden were among those indicted for complicity in the rescue. Neither was ever sentenced. On June 16, 1851, the jury trying Hayden reported that it had been unable to reach a verdict. Five months later, the Morris case came to an end. The federal authorities had tried to charge him with treason, but the grand jury had him bound over for a misdemeanor. On November 11, 1851, the jury that heard the case, United States versus Robert Morris, returned a verdict of not guilty. Boston had two cases of runaways being sent back to slavery, but in each instance the fugitive slave law won a clouded victory at best. 
early in April 1851, while the abolitionists were still in the pleasant afterglow of the Shadrach rescue, Thomas Sims, a fugitive from Georgia, was seized. Sims was rushed to the courthouse, a gloomy granite building that the federal authorities had to use as a jail, Massachusetts law preventing the use of state facilities for fugitive slave purposes. Legal efforts to free Sims were unsuccessful. A plot to effect his escape was equally abortive. Leonard A. Grimes visited Sims and told him that a mattress would be placed outside his window at a certain hour and that he was to jump and land on it and be spirited away. But before the scheme could be put into operation, the courthouse authorities put bars on every window. Taking additional precautions, especially to secure the doorways, they placed an iron chain around the building, already encircled by a hundred policemen. Shortly before sunrise on April 13th, Sims was marched to the Long Wharf to be shipped back to slavery. Despite the early hour, 100 abolitionists were present, marching solemnly behind a cordon of policemen three times their number. As Sims, tear-streaked but erect, marched up the gangplank, someone cried out, Sims, preach liberty to the slaves. The sorrowing abolitionists made their way back to the anti-slavery office, pausing on State Street at the spot where the black Crispus Attucks fell in the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770, an event signaling the Revolutionary War. Sims was gone, but he left behind more than the coat he wore on the day he was seized as prized as it became among abolitionists. His seizure gave to the recently reorganized Vigilance Committee a reason for being, thus attracting new supporters and swelling its coffers. Many of its meetings were held at the home of Lewis Hayden. In 1851, the committee assisted 69 fugitives of record. It had on its payroll 49 Negroes who harbored slaves pending their final disposition. John S. Rock, then practicing medicine rather than law, was paid by the committee for his services to sick fugitives. Despite the efforts of Boston abolitionists, white and black, a runaway slave was taken from the city in the spring of 1854. This was the celebrated Anthony Burns, who had learned to read and write in slavery, having had a kindly disposed master. Late in May, 1854, Burns was arrested as a fugitive slave and put in irons. Two days later, an attempt was made to storm the courthouse and seize Burns, but the attack was repulsed, one of the deputies, however, being shot and killed. During the following week, while the city awaited the commissioner's decision, feeling ran high. Beg our colored friends to bear and forbear, wrote John Greenleaf Whittier. Oh, let them beware of violence. The black people thronged around the courthouse, showing their sympathy by watching around the clock. Burns needed sympathy, as United States Commissioner Edward G. Loring had returned a verdict in favor of his master. Richard Henry Dana and Leonard Grimes hastened to the courthouse to be with the prisoner and attempt to raise his spirits. Later that day, many shops were hung in black, and a huge coffin was strung over State Street. Our worst fears are realized, wrote 16-year-old Charlotte Fortin in her diary for June 2, 1854. A cloud seems hanging over me, over all our persecuted race, which nothing can dispel. One thing remained, 
to get Burns from the courthouse to the wharf to be put aboard a revenue cutter that was bound for Virginia. From the courthouse door, a loaded gun was mounted, and from the courthouse to the wharf, the streets were lined with police. In the center of the armed posse marched Burns. He had expected to have Dana and Grimes walking beside him, but the marshal of the posse had gone back on his word to permit such an arrangement. Fifty thousand spectators witnessed the procession as it made its way past buildings draped in black. One of these viewers was a good-looking young Negro girl whose teeth were clenched and whose eyes were tearful. Samuel Gridley Howell attempted to console her, saying that Burns would not be hurt. Hurt, she said, I cry for shame that he will not kill himself. Oh, why is he not man enough to kill himself? Charlotte Fortin expressed the belief that very few clergymen would speak out against the cruel outrage on humanity represented by the rendition of Burns. The fearless Theodore Parker could be numbered in that select company, preaching a sermon which asserted that in the wicked week of 1854, Massachusetts was one of the inferior counties of Virginia, and Boston but a suburb of Alexandria. It is hardly surprising that when William J. Watkins had heard Parker six months earlier, he had come to the conclusion that no man preached more truth. The rendition of Anthony Burns left the abolitionists frustrated and angry, but its sequel was more to their liking. The revulsion of feeling throughout Massachusetts prompted the legislature to pass a more comprehensive personal liberty law in 1855, one which practically made the fugitive slave law a dead letter in the Bay State. Public opinion was changing, with abolitionists coming to be regarded less as traitors and more as patriots. Moreover, Burns remained a slave for less than a year. His new master, unlike his predecessor, was willing to set him at liberty for a price. With money raised in abolitionist circles, Leonard A. Grimes went to Baltimore to complete the transaction and accompanied Burns back to the free states and a joyous welcome. Shortly thereafter, he entered Oberlin, where he remained for two years before enrolling at the Fairmount Theological Seminary at Cincinnati. Except in the Far West, the defiance of the fugitive slave law was widespread. The locale of slave rescues ranged from Massachusetts to the Middle Atlantic states and those bordering the Great Lakes and known collectively as the Old Northwest. Three representative examples of slave recaptures may be briefly noted, including the typical role played by black activists. In New York, the most celebrated instance of the law's defiance was the rescue of William Henry, on October 1, 1851, at Syracuse. A muscular mulatto who went by the name Jerry, he was known to be a runaway, but his conduct had been above reproach, and his employer, C.P. Williston, had found no complaint with his work as a cooper. Seized and taken to the federal commissioner's office, Jerry was in the process of being indicted when he slipped his guard and dashed out of the building and down the street. But being manacled, he was caught by the police, and after a stiff fight, the battered and disheveled prisoner was returned to the commissioner's office. The news of the incident spread rapidly, and within a few hours the abolitionists had formulated a rescue plan. Shortly after eight o'clock that evening, a group of men dashed into the police office, overwhelmed the guards by sheer numbers, battered down the door to the room Jerry was in, and took him. The first persons reaching him were two Negroes, 
Peter Hollenbeck and William Gray, the latter a runaway. Jerry was first taken to the home of a colored man where his shackles were removed. Then, to avoid suspicion, he was removed to the home of a white friend. Here he remained in hiding for five days before beginning his journey to Kingston, Ontario. Someone had to face the music, and the federal government proceeded to indict 18 of the rescuers. Samuel Ringgold Ward, who claimed to have assisted in filing off Jerry's chains, hastened to Montreal. From this retreat, he wrote to George Whipple of the American Missionary Association, offering his services in the Canadian field. Another equally well-known black abolitionist, Germaine W. Loguen, also made his way to Her Majesty's dominions. Loguen took the step in response to his wife's urgings. Two months later, on December 2, 1851, he wrote to Governor Hunt requesting protection should he return to Syracuse. Along with Loguen, four other Negroes were indicted, Prince Jackson, William Thompson, Harrison Allen, and Enoch Reed. Only three of the eighteen rescuers were put on trial, and only one of these, Enoch Reed, was found guilty. He died pending an appeal, which he would have undoubtedly won. The Jerry rescue, in common with others of its kind, had great significance to abolitionists. They did not propose to let it die. Annually, until the Civil War, the reformers in western New York commemorated October 1st as Jerry Rescue Day. At the first anniversary, typical of those which followed, some 2,500 abolitionists came together, including William H. Topp, Frederick Douglass, William G. Allen, and the short-time emigrant Germaine W. Loguen. White participants included Daniel Drayton of the Pearl, Samuel J. May, William Lloyd Garrison, and suffragists Lucretia Mott and young Lucy Stone. The speeches that lacked eloquence were not wanting in earnestness. Perhaps the palm went to a practiced scene-stealer. Frederick Douglass gave us some of the thunder of the gods, wrote William G. Allen. Some say that his was the speech of the morning, but I must confess that my heart palpitated toward Lucy, added that ever-gallant youthful professor of Bell Lecter. The attempted rendition of Jerry took place less than a month before the far more upsetting and highly publicized Christiana riot, the first defiance of the fugitive slave law resulting in bloodshed. To Christiana, a town in southern Pennsylvania, came Edward Gorsuch on September 11, 1851, from bordering Maryland in search of his four escaped slaves. Gorsuch and his party of six went to the home of William Parker, whom he suspected of harboring one or more of the fugitives. Himself a runaway from Maryland, Parker was in no mood to release an alleged slave, a feeling shared by the other Negroes in the town. Still vivid in their memory was the midnight seizure of a Negro six months previously, his abductors, a slave-hunting band known as the Gag Gang, having produced no warrant. When Gorsuch demanded that Parker permit him to enter the house, the latter's wife, Eliza Ann, herself a former runaway, blew a large dinner horn, a signal which summoned some two dozen Negroes to the scene. Soon an exchange of shots took place, resulting in the death of Gorsuch and the wounding of his son. Thereupon the outnumbered besiegers, already in no mood to press matters, withdrew. Forty-five Marines and a civil posse of fifty men were dispatched to restore order. 
the acting Secretary of State, W.S. Derrick, assured the governor of Maryland that the president deplored this violation of the rights of the citizens of his state and that the federal government would exercise all its powers in bringing the offenders to book. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now. Well, I want to welcome everyone back uh, to the show. Just having completed our reading of The Black Abolitionist by uh, Benjamin Quarles. Quite a bit of information uh, there in reference to the petitions and the gag rule and and that sort of thing. They also mentioned a Jerry Rescue Day. And uh, our show opened up with uh, discussion of the Harriet Tubman Day. If anyone would like to call in and any comments or questions, the number is 347-324-5552. I'm wondering if our guest uh, stayed with us. Penny Marshall, are you there? Okay, probably she had to get to work as she is the um, program manager for the Harriet Tubman Day there in the state of Delaware, which will be Sunday, March the 10th. Do I have someone on the line with me? Uh, That's just me, Leslie Gist. uh, Oh, hi, Leslie. Hi, I just want to thank you for doing an exceptional job and mentioning those great points. if you don't have anything else to say, uh, the lines well, are open. I see a, some lines here, but I guess everyone's a little bit too shy. Okay. Well, I must say I was uh, impressed uh, with the petitions, the amount of signatures uh, that were garnered. Um, that first one was 51,862, and then a petition later on, of 64,000 signatures. I believe that was in 1843, uh, weighing 150 pounds. Um, So it seemed that the free blacks in the North were politically savvy enough to uh, use these petitions uh, to further their political rights. And it was probably futile, I think, to... um, present that uh, one petition to Andrew Jackson, which was against Mm -hmm. the annexation of Texas. Uh, I believe that was in 1832 or 1830. And uh, Mr. Jackson was probably consumed with uh, getting the Native Americans out of the southeast part of the United States, uh, getting them ready for the Trail of Tears. So he had very little interest in any Petitions against the annexation of Texas. Which and I there's currently there's currently um, uh, people uh, that are opposed to the petitions uh, today. They're saying they're frivolous. So it's funny how you know history repeats itself in that regard. Are you familiar with uh, what's going on in the news currently with the petitions in the White House? Yeah, I think the petition, uh, the power there is to raise awareness um, 
I think with the um, 1850 fugitive slave law, which was probably the forerunner to the Civil War, which really gave uh, impediments to the starting of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. the outrage uh, of uh, abolitionists, particularly black abolitionists, and uh, the meetings and the defiance. Uh, I was surprised at the defiance where uh, black abolitionists were taking up arms. Prior to 1850, did you take note? Prior to 1850, the black abolitionists were confronting the uh, kidnappers, the bounty hunters, people like David Ruggles. And I think this is what prompted them to um, revise the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850, which I had never heard of before. So I thought that was quite interesting. They named a number of cases in Philadelphia, uh, New York, where uh, blacks were just snatching, um, you know, the uh, the free blacks away from the kidnappers by force. Yeah, and it uh, started a great exodus that I wasn't aware of either, of mm-hmm. blacks uh, leaving the various states and headed for Canada. After, after 1850. Yeah, that was after 1850, right at it. And what did you and what did you think about Ellen Craft, which I have posted on Facebook right now, story of her and her husband. Uh, how they um, dared to return back to uh, slavery and they carried weapons. Exactly. I made a note on that, uh, on the crafts um, arming themselves to resist uh, capture and removal back to slavery. uh, Can I make this comment? Yes. Please join in. The lines are open. If anyone wants to join in, just join in. Okay, well, I have this observation I want to share. Go right ahead, sir. In the um, early 1800s, this movement, Progress, uh, Quarles' book, he he shares that um, from 1817 to uh, the 1840s, you see a progression and a a sharpening of the of the debate and this discourse on the subject of slavery, but more importantly, you see a sharpening of the discussion on how to resolve it. The, the role of force uh, comes out in his book. Uh, there are two wings, or what I call two different lines struggling here. The, the the movement would popularize that slavery should end, but there were those who there were those reformists who who thought that it, and articulated the idea that it could end probably some kind of way without force. And you see what's happening that um, it could only be resolved by the use of force, um, which I think is, in my opinion is the most powerful political lesson coming out of this struggle. Is this uh, Um, Leon, the historian? Yeah, my name is Leon Waters. Um, That idea is not sharply presented, but it is presented. 
is presented by the descriptions of the powerful uh, actions that are stimulating the the struggle over a period of years, the Nat Turner uh, Rebellion, the uh, the propaganda pamphlet by Howland Garnett, etc. Now, you had people, you had a number of Anglo-Americans that sided with this more uh, militant, direct action, revolutionary, radical posture. But people like William Lloyd Garrison, that would be the splitting question. Uh, that led to uh, a separation between he and then Frederick Douglass. And all my point is this. You see the same thing being played out today. There's this illusion and there's this deception that some kind of way all the uh, criminal activities, the oppression of our people, which is on the rise, the uh, assaults uh, against us on every level, privatization of education, police murders, police terror, Illegal drug cap, you name it. Stand your ground. Yeah, right. There's there's this illusion that these things can be solved through negotiating, debate, discussion. That's and you see you see the form it takes. Um, This this group called Change.org and the the numerous other uh, groups that well, they want you to sign a petition. Okay to uh, voice your opposition on that. The signing the petition is not, not the point I'm trying to say. The point I'm trying to say is that they limit, they limit the struggle, and in so doing, they give the illusion that we can solve this problem. If they were, if change.org and all these other types of uh, uh, online petitions things had, their, had the understanding that, yes, we want you to change, we want you to sign this petition, and the petition says so and so and so, but along with that, we want to bring an end to the existing order that's oppressing us. We say that, uh, there has to be a much more um, powerful revolutionary uh, idea connected with the reform that they're fighting with. Because they don't make that connection, they end up actually miseducating people of the of the goal and aim of the fight. The fight can we cannot transform the society without the uh, replacing of this system with another system. And, and, and one of the most powerful things to learn from history, which I think uh, some of these teachers and educators, in particular university professors, failed to teach, is that is the political lesson. They could not have reformed uh, uh, chattel slavery where it would have been eliminated. Recently, on a on a on a on a political on a um, intellectual conversation uh, that was on TV, you had like it was like a, a roundtable discussion. You had about four different people there, and um, intellectual uh, two Anglo Americans, no three Anglo Americans and one African American. And one of the African Americans well, there was the head the head of the. You know, Leon here recently. Yeah. Um, there was a successful petition, uh, at least the TV network was successfully lobbied to cancel a uh-huh. show. 
about yeah. a rapper's reality show about uh, baby mama drama and his 11 children. and Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is uh, the power of petitioning, if you will. Um, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that in itself is wrong. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm saying what I'm saying, and that's a game. That's great. That's a game. Well, but, but what I'm saying is, in my opinion, it can't stay at that level where we don't connect the reform we're trying to get with the need to, uh, with the ultimate demand uh, uh, that should be linked to. Uh, let me just say this, and I'll shut up. Um, at this roundtable, for instance, the president really makes a statement that they were talking about economics and low income and minimum wage. He says, the way, the way we see change to come about to improve the well-being of the poor and people is that the economic system we live under has to be reformed. Now, he didn't lay out how he sees that can be done, but frankly, that is impossible. You see, you're giving a reformist solution that cannot be made, cannot happen under the existing order. Why can't? Because, well, he really should try to explain himself, but, but why can't? Because the economy is in the hands of the wealthy, not the government. Or, or, it, or can, you, can you really sit down with the people who control the economy and negotiate with them to make it better, make it more balanced for people? That's impossible. Or can you appeal to the government to get the government to get them right when the government, if you check out Congress lately, when the government is all a bunch of millionaires themselves. So it's this kind of unscientific uh, ideas that, that they disseminate amongst masses that make, that, that make them think that waging a reformist campaign alone will lead to necessary fundamental change. It will not. It did not under child of slavery, and it's certainly not going to do it under the existing law. That's my comment. That's right. <clears throat> Very good. Thank you for uh, joining us, uh, Leon, Mr. Leon Waters, a uh, historian, um, giving us some comments and his take on uh, the reading of The Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Um, so... Are we to say that blacks should stay as far away from money and trading with non-blacks? Um, they, they that blacks should stay away from trading money and trading with non-blacks. Um, um, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure of what the question is. Okay. But mine are callers that the call in number is three four seven three two four five 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 two. Just completed a reading of the Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Excuse me, we've been talking here just recently with uh, Mr. Leon Waters, historian. Um 
in reference. Is that a caller? Okay. Um, on the power of it, uh, petitions. Um, I have are, a question. Sure. Leon, do you think that uh, the financial system is our answer? The economics? What, do I think what? How do we get out of this rut? Through, through the economy, uh, through finance? Is that what you're alluding to? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, it's going to take a revolution to get out of this. Mm-hmm. It's going to, we got to replace this system with another system. We got to replace the existing state apparatus with another state apparatus. There, there's not going to be any other way. We can't go through a reformist movement to correct what exists because the depth of the oppression that we're under is so entrenched, it cannot be reformed. Now, we can get some, you, you, you know, there's struggle all over the country, and some of them are making some steps, some gains, and, uh, just like this, this example the gentleman just, just said. Uh, and all that's great, I mean, because you need these victories to increase your fighting capacity. But what I'm saying is, uh, and I may not be saying it clear enough, it might be my fault, what I'm saying is, all these struggles really should be connected with the ultimate aim. And what do I mean by it? Well, if if you're picketing somewhere and you're trying to get uh, some justice or you're trying to get an increase on wage or or, or what have you, whatever the the, the immediate objective, the immediate reform is, uh, on your signs, you should also connect that with Hey, we want the dictatorship of the rich, for instance, uh, brought down. And that's a revolutionary idea. You have a one side of your, your picket sign raise the wages uh, 25%, let's say. On the other side, you pick, or you have on your picket sign uh, uh, stop police uh, brutality or whatever it is. And on the other side of your, your sign, you have something like uh, make the rich pay down with the dictatorship of the rich. That idea is a revolutionary idea. And what that does, along with your reform, it puts more pressure on the class you're fighting. Sometimes you even get concessions just from an inflammatory flyer. Uh, flyer. But at the same time, you're educating people that, hey, we can't stop for a, a reform, or to, or, which is really a tiny improvement. We've got to understand that we're going to have to build a movement that's going to replace this. Because society, well, I, society doesn't, get, doesn't get transformed, well, we're still going to be in a rut. That's all I'm saying. Well, the the present system is capitalism. Right. The alternative systems would be socialism, communism, or fascism. Okay. We are to have equitable distribution of the wealth. Okay. All right. Okay. As Mr. Marx said a number of years ago, you have to seize the means of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I don't know that uh, that capability exists right now within the United States. Um, there must be another way to to formulate that without going to one of the other known systems, uh, economic systems that exist throughout the world. Um, well, you're right. That capability doesn't exist at this time. Uh, what I'm saying is that you know, everything in life begins small and grows big. You know, I'm saying that although it doesn't exist, 
I'm, I'm, my opinion is that we have to get clear on what is the ultimate solution, and 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 be guided by that to build. We have to we have to rebuild the struggle in this country, and I think the uh, political objective has to be replacing the existing order with another order. We can debate, discuss what that should be, but uh, without a doubt, this this thing got to go. This thing can't be reformed. Uh-uh. It's um, it's got to go. I mean, all your all all the all the, all the most important things, means of production, the publishing houses, the means of communications. Sure, we got some freedoms now with the internet, but even the government can shut that down. All that's controlled by a handful, numerically handful of people, and um, they are so greedy. They are definitely bearing down through their government, through an austerity program. It's getting making our situation worse and worse and worse, and uh, uh, hopefully we can build a serious party of the working class that can really uh, contest for power in this country, or else uh, we're going to be driven down to the level of what's going on in Italy. Uh, I mean, these people in D.C. can't unite on anything. They they are debating and quarreling on themselves. They represent two wings of the big rich. We have no uh, future with that. So we got to find something else. Find another way. That's all I'm saying. Yes, this is move- and so the movement has to be uh, rebuilt. And um, um, that's all I'm saying. St. Quarles' book is saying, and the point he brings home out of his book, he doesn't. He doesn't expressly say it, but it comes out that it's going to take force to transform society. Just to force and take force to do it. Liam, before we go, um, last question. Uh, There were two types of colonies uh, that came here on different systems, political systems, Uh, the, uh, the religiously persecuted who formed uh, their own colonies and settled here uh, for totally different reasons than the colonies that were settled and chartered by um, England. What do you have to say about the two different systems and they weren't um, out for the same motives as far as finances and capitalism? Well, I think there were more than two, but you know, one, one the section of the country was colonized by the English. Another section was colonized by the French. Another section was colonized by the Spanish. You know, they were all competitors, just like Exxon, Mogul, and BP, all competitors today. They're all their own companies. They're all competitors. You know, and, and Pennsylvania, um, of, Pennsylvania uh-huh. was chartered by the Quakers. Okay, all right. And you had a few of the first the first settlers uh-huh. who were not here um, based on the king's rules. They, in right. fact, they were ostracized and sent here. Right. But right. as they began to develop and become mm-hmm. wealthy, wow. they sent other people to compete with the religious people mm-hmm. and to push them out with the mm-hmm. use of free labor, forced labor, slaves. Mm-hmm. So this country, that's why, you know, during... Um, the inception of the country, the abolitionists 
fought for one type of government, and you had the slavers fighting for a different type. Right. I think Thomas Jefferson had some famous quote about which way are we going to go, morally or capitalism. And he said, you have to pick right now. Let's choose. Mm-hmm. It looks like we chose capitalism. But uh, right. do you have any um, take on the, the two different systems and what what was the uh, system of the religious persecuted uh, settlers? Um, you know, I'm not familiar with the with the um, what was the um, the uh, economic uh, mm-hmm. agitation of the religious persecutors. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it was that. I don't think it was that I don't think it was that different from uh, what we understand at the beginning of capitalism, because my understanding was all this stuff was based off commodity production. Um, mercantilism was a, a form of the capitalist developing, and then uh, it, it moved from a lower form to a more higher form uh, to eventually get the form of monopoly capitalism and what have you. Um, I, I, historically, as a trend, it was progressive. What do I mean by that? Okay. It was progressive. It, was, it moved the world and society forward coming out of feudalism. But it would reach a certain point in its development and become uh, no longer progressive. I mean, I mean, it was progressive to be able to uh, build a plant where one time you had a man making a shoe, a shoemaker, and now you have a, a building with a hundred people making shoes. That's more productive. Okay, mm-hmm. that is progressive. The problem is that as, as the economic system developed in its, in its, in its development. Now, are you familiar that, with the um, with the uh, Quakers in a Dutch Dutch country and uh, and their way of living? No, no, I'm not. No. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Well, we have to have another show. We both have to study. Uh, their system, and, and they're still in existence right now, Dutch uh, mm-hmm. country and PA, um, and they have a simple life. But I just want to thank you for joining the conversation and like to end the show tonight. Any uh, closing remarks? Well, my only closing remark I can give you is that I enjoyed the show. I, I listened from thank the you. Penny Marshall all the way to the gentleman. That, that's a very, um, a gentleman, the gentleman who reads the thing. He reminds Preston me of the, Washington. Yeah, okay. He reminds me of the gentleman on that Allstate commercial. He speaks very well, speaks very mm-hmm. powerful, and he gives mm-hmm. me life to the history. So I, mm-hmm. I enjoy it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think his phone died out uh, on us, so I had to take over. But, again, thanks again for calling. I hope you continue to support us. And um, anyone in the Delaware area, Come on out this Sunday and do the walk with uh, Penny Marshall and some great um, Harriet Tubman Day in Delaware. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.